This second podcast comes from the famed Delane Lee Studios in the West End of London. Delane Lee was founded in 1947 to dub English films into French, but as it adapted to the changing marketplace, it was also used by some of the biggest rock bands of the 60s and 70s, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, and Queen, to name just a few. Today it serves as a re-recording facility for Warner Brothers. It was there that I had the opportunity to sit down with CAS members Chris Monroe and Simon Hayes to talk about their careers and insight into their own workflows. The podcast is in two parts. I started off by playing a compilation of tracks from films that had an influence on both of them. What sort of stupid question is that? Are you blind? Yes. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Wouldn't it have been lovely if we'd met before? Before we did. Yes. I'm going to make him an offer again with you. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Hasta la vista, baby. I thought I'd kick off with those little clips there. It was Return of the Pink Panther, Dr. Strangelove, Dr. Shivago, which was Chris's choices there in terms of films that made an impact on him. And we had The Godfather, Goodfellas, and Terminator 2 with Simon. So I'm going to begin with Chris. That time period when you went to see these movies, just give me a little insight on what was happening in the UK and what you were doing in the late 60s and 70s, which made you decide you wanted to make a career in sound recording. Those movies were very much kind of late 50s and 60s movies. We, did, we didn't have a TV until quite late. I grew up in a you know an area of northwest London, not by no means wealthy, and uh, probably the opposite of what most people going to the film industry were in those days. You were expecting quite a lot of people that went in from you know, from fairly affluent areas. But going back to my childhood, I went to the cinema a lot. Firstly, with my my mother and my older brothers, and then, you know, with friends. And cinema was something that I would go to at least a couple of times a week. It was a, it was a passion. And I'd go through different things. You played the Pink Panther. So that was, you know, that was the, the first of the kind of comedies that kids go to see. And then, you know, I got to like Peter Sellers, and then I saw Doctor Strange Love, which was something else which led me onto Kubrick and started to appreciate Kubrick films. And uh, that was very much my childhood, but I was also madly keen on electronics. My school didn't encourage me to join the film industry, which is what I always wanted to do. They more or less made it feel it was impossible. But I had a weekend job where I worked in a garage and somebody came into the garage, he filled up with, with petrol, went to start his car, his car wouldn't start. And he said, oh, can you help me start it? I said, well, you know, I can't really do anything. I'm only here to serve the petrol. And he said, oh, I've got to get to the studio. And as soon as he said studio, I realized there was something about this. And it turned out he worked at Elstree Studios. He very foolishly gave me his business card. I then drove him crazy um, about wanting to get a job at Elstree Studios. Eventually, he said, oh, well, look, you know, I think they are looking for somebody in the um, in the sound department, but it's in sound maintenance, you know, and they need somebody that, you know, that knows about electronics and stuff. I said, well, yeah, I know all about that. That would be, you know, I, I can do that. And bear in mind, this was a time in the late 60s when the transistor was fairly new. Most electronics were on valve technology. I knew a lot about transistor um, technology, and I got this interview at Elstree Studios, and it turned out that I knew more about the electronics than the person that was interviewing me. He eventually said, okay, well, you've got the job as a trainee sound maintenance engineer. When can you start? So I said, well, Monday. And he said, yeah, great, start Monday. So Monday I started at Elstree Studios telling my parents that it was a weekend job because I, they had expected me to stay on at school. I'd taken my O-levels a year early and done pretty well. I was, I was quite good at school. When September came, you know, I was still going to work, and mid-September the school called to ask why I wasn't at school. Then I had to put my hands up and say I, I'd taken this job. And fortunately, my parents were okay with that, more or less, eventually, and that was where I stayed, and the rest, I guess, is kind of history. I love the fact that it was this casual meeting in the forecourt of a, a petrol station, mm -hmm. which basically one person doing a decent thing changes the course of your life. 
Simon, your father, John Hayes, was a documentary sound recordist. He also did uh, the first films of Dirk Jarman. What was it like in your house in those days? Is that what basically can put you on the course of, of getting in the film business from watching your dad going out to work? Yeah, it was. Um, it was a cool job. It always seemed like him and his friends were coming and, you know, the camera guys would turn up in the transit van and pick up my old man and, you know, they, they all looked like they were going off and having fun rather than going off and doing a, a day's work. And, you know, what he did was he, he did something quite clever to get me interested. He would bring me broken bits of sound equipment home and give them to me at five years old and say, well, why don't you try fix that? And, uh, you know, shamefully what I started doing at first was I'd just take a hammer and, and smash these bits of equipment up more because I was so young. But age six or seven, I started getting the screwdriver out and actually, you know, taking it apart and putting it back together. And I think uh, when I was about six and a half, seven years old, he brought back an old Nakamichi cassette deck and uh, said, look, this thing isn't working properly. Now, you know what? I think it probably was because I never found a fault with it. But uh, what I got was an old condenser microphone and this Nakamichi cassette deck, and I started doing recordings with it. And what we would do in those days, I'd have my best friend come over, and we'd record a spoof radio show, and we'd be the two DJs, and we'd tell jokes. And I can remember the first time, again, seven years old, where I sat down, and for, you know, for 90 minutes, we recorded this whole radio show. And at the end, I said, okay, well, listen, let's, let, I think that was pretty funny. Let's, let's rewind it and play it back. And the whole thing was square waved. It was completely distorted. And that was my first uh, understanding of the horror of having the responsibility of recording something, thinking that it's all going well, and realizing that due to my technical inability, I'd messed it up. And we then said, well, look, don't worry, we, let, let's just do it again. And of course, the second time it wasn't as funny. And that's, you know, very, very early on in my life when I started understanding that you just can't recreate emotion, you can't recreate performance, and the sound man's got to get it right the first time. So that was my introduction to sound. I actually fell in love with sound before I fell in love with movies. This carried on through my childhood and, you know, and I was also playing guitar at the time and, you know, I had a little electric guitar and I used to... Uh, I used to play with guitar pedals and I had one of those, you know, those echo boxes that was on a bit of quarter inch tape. You'd, you'd play a loop and it would play it back to you. And I remember playing with that and thinking, you know, this is, this is incredible. And so throughout this time as a child, I was playing with sound and I was starting to understand and figuring out how to get around technical issues. You know, Chris talks about his understanding of electronics. I didn't have that understanding of electronics. What I had was a practical sense of what would work and what wouldn't. And I, and I basically, rather than getting the soldering iron out and fixing problems, I would problem solve and find a way around them um, because of my inability with electronics. You know, I'd never been trained formally. Interestingly, you know, Chris said that he did really well at school with his O-levels. I did terribly. And, uh, and I went to college to do retakes, and I just knew it wasn't for me. The moment I got to college, I'm thinking, you know what, I'm going to do this for two years, and the same thing's going to happen. And so I started writing to production companies uh, without my father, without my parents knowing. And I, I had three interviews. The third interview, I got a job as a runner. You know, at that point, my old man didn't know what I was up to because I was saying I was going to college every day. And I went and got a job as a runner at a commercials production company in Soho and started going to work there. You know, I eventually admitted and said, look, this, this is what I've done. I've left college, but I'm, I'm in commercials now and, and I'm a runner and, you know, and it's, it's all going well. So I, I spent two or three years as a runner and then as a third assistant director and then as a second assistant director on commercials and music videos before about 19 and I just gravitate towards the sound department. I'd see the sound department needed a cable basher or, you know, they'd, they'd be struggling with some speakers on a music video and I'd go and help them. And I kind of just understood and got what those guys were doing. I just aged about 18 or 19. I kind of went, you know what? This, this craziness of trying to prove to my old man that I can do it without him, I'm actually gravitating towards the sound department. And so I phoned him, I said, Dad, you know this thing about me being a second assistant director and wanting to be a first assistant director? I've changed my mind. I'd love to come and work with you. And he kind of said, okay, great, let's, let's, let's do it. And I started uh, going out with him as his utility, 
So I kind of cut my teeth in sound working as a utility on the comic strip presents. And then there was a perfect storm. At the time, it didn't feel like a perfect storm. But what happened after two years of working with my father, I was in 21 years old. He came back from a lunchtime meeting in Soho one day and said, look, I got some really good news for me. It's not such good news for you. I said, okay, what's happening? He said, I, you know, a buddy of mine has started a production company. It's doing really well. He's offered me a job as a producer. I think I'm just going to have to go and do it. You know, I I quite fancy trying it out, Um, but it's going to leave you without a job. And I kind of took a deep breath and said, well, you know what, Dad, this is a good thing because it's going to give me a chance to go and work with other sound mixers. It's going to get other people's perspective on how they work. And it was, it was a really exciting time. So suddenly he's not doing sound anymore. And I was going out freelance and working for other sound mixers. But something curious happened. This was in 1991. And at that point, there was a significant shift in commercials. And there was no young sound men. There was, there was just nobody young at that point, production sound mixing on commercials. So I got a phone call one day from a woman called Madeline Sanderson, who's a, who's a very well-known commercials producer, who said, listen, I hear your old man's retired from sound. Um, we wondered whether you'd come and mix this commercial. And I said, Madeline, look, I couldn't possibly. I've just been utility for a couple of years. I'm not ready to go mixing. And she said, Simon, listen, let me tell you, we're shooting over three days. There's one line of dialogue to record. The rest is just sync Atmos. If you mess the line of dialogue up, we'll re-record it later. We'll post-sync it. Just come and do it for us. We need you. So I went off and did it. I recorded the line of dialogue. I got it right. I didn't distort it, unlike the Nakamichi cassette deck. And uh, and that was the start of my career as a production sound mixer. I just want to pivot back to Chris. 1968, you're at Elstree. There's a whole community of production sound mixers out there that, unlike today, we are all connected. We all pretty much know what everybody's doing. But let me give you a few names here. You had Claude Hitchcock, Paddy Cunningham, Peter Hanford, Buster Ambler, Derek Ball, Simon Kay. You smiled a little bit about uh, Claude Hitchcock. You worked with him in Vampire Circus, I believe. He did The Dirty Dozen, Zulu, The Blue Max, moved into television, worked on The Avengers and The Champions. Okay, let me just go back a little. When I first, one of my big difficulties of joining the industry was being a member of the union. The, you couldn't get a, it was a closed shop. You couldn't get a job if you weren't a member of the union. You couldn't become a union member unless you had a job. So that was really tricky. I'd managed to get in the way I'd started. I wasn't a union member. My very first week, I was asked to go on the set of, um, of a TV series called The Avengers, where they needed some, the boom operator needed some help. The boom operator's name was Charlie Wheeler. And as it happened, he was also the president of the union. And he said to me, before I could touch the room, he said, are you a union member? I said, well, no. Remember, I'm 16. Um, I said, well, well, no. He said, do you want to be? I said, yes. So he said, okay, there's the form. Fill this form in. Get back to me. I was then made a member of the union, which was amazing because, you know, another piece of luck because most people took years to join the union. It was a very difficult thing. So it was a close, pretty much a closed shop. It was a closed shop. In our first podcast, Bill Kaplan talked about the difficulties of joining the union in Los Angeles. So it was equally difficult here. It, it was very similar, very similar. So so to make a point, so now I'm a union member. Now I can go on the set fairly easily. So what used to happen was my first responsibility was for sound maintenance of, of editing rooms. And so I used to look after all the movieolas, all that kind of stuff. That was the first thing I did. But what used to happen in between is if they needed an extra boom or someone to hold a mic or whatever on a set or even a cable basher, They'd call across and I would go on whatever set happened. Well, as soon as I I stepped on the set, I knew that's where I wanted to be. So I always, I would always, you know, probably go around most of the sets every day and ask if they needed any help. And so I'd usually be spending most day on set. And one of the teams I worked with quite a lot was Claude Hitchcock. And Claude at that time used to work on a lot of the films with Roger Moore. And so we, I often worked on the Roger Moore films. It came the time that Roger Moore had then been asked to do a TV series at Pinewood Studios with Tony Curtis. So I took the plunge. So in 1971, something like that, I became freelance. And I went to Pinewood to work on The Persuaders. I worked a lot at Pinewood after that 
always freelance, but I worked there so much, people tended to think I was on the staff. I never was. Now, with uh, Claude, do you remember what his package was back then? I presume it's a little bit different as to what it would be today. Well, a lot of the time, Claude's package was owned by the studio. So at Elstree, it was their own equipment. We had a perfect own mixer, which was on set. I think it was four channels, three or four channels. And the sound camera operator used to operate the 35mm machine in a separate room. So that would be in a separate central recording area for the studio where the the recordist or a sound camera operator would run that 35mm machine. All Claude would have on set would be a mixer. We would use originally um, RCA 10001 microphones. That was a very common microphone on the boom. Um... And then we then we we moved over to um, Sennheisers. I think the eight one fives first of first of all, but then of course the four one five, the smaller Sennheiser mics. We always used a Fisher boom. There were more Richards and booms when, when I first started, but I had always used a Fisher boom. And that again was another thing that when I wasn't working on a film, one of the things I used to do was to strip the Fisher booms down and make them. And I prided myself that I could I could strip a Fisher boom down and reassemble it in a matter of hours. So I became a bit of a Fisher boom expert. And I used to love to practice on the Fisher. I could do all kinds of tricks on the Fisher and all that kind of stuff. I had a trick to do on a Fisher too. I was working on a play for today for BBC. And sadly, uh, I was setting it up in the morning and somehow I managed to unstring it to the horror of the sound supervisor. So uh, it was a gentleman by the name of Dixie Dean. He was very influential in, in, in my career, yeah. but I uh, didn't have a clue. And uh, the main boom operator, Tony Dobbin, uh, very painstakingly put it back together again, but I was absolutely, the perspiration was lashing off me. So could have used that, that, your help that day. Well, that's funny because, you know, a couple of times I've had, um, I've had, you know, now DPs often use them with their China balls on. I've been suddenly asked, oh, do you know how to put this together? And then magically I could still remember how to restring it pretty pretty quickly. I was keen to mix. 1975, I was asked if I would go out on a film called Cross of Iron with David Hilljard. And he said, oh, okay, how about come along, mix our second unit and um, and do some maintenance as well. Fine. So I agreed to do that in what was then Yugoslavia. It was a Sam Peckinpah film. It was James Coburn. With James Coburn. Maximum James Michel, James, James Mason. Mason. Yeah. Huge, huge war movie, I think, you know. A little bit intimidating. Very intimidating. <laughs> um, David Hilljard, the, the film ran way over. And so second unit got more and more important. Often we'd work with Peck and Parr. And eventually David Hilljard had another film to do. So I ended up finishing off main unit. That was my first kind of introduction. I got on very well with um, Peck and Parr. I got on well with the team. I loved it, of course. And um, I was in awe of everything and... And um, and that was it for me. You know, I decided to be a mixer from then on. What's really interesting is that, you know, the UK in the 60s, 70s, very busy film-wise. Were you aware of other production mixers, boom operators? Was there a sense of community? Yeah, there was definitely. Um, um, we, we definitely all we, all, we all knew each other. There, was, there wasn't quite so much of a sense of competition as I've noticed there is now. Simon mentioned about doing commercials. Commercials were very much a start of my career. Um, after that, I tended to work a lot with on, on commercials with, with people like Ridley Scott and Alan Parker and all of those actors, uh, all of those directors who went on to become big movie directors. And, uh, you know, I even worked on a series of um, Orson Welles commercials, um, which was, you know, really was, was quite intimidating. We had a massive commercials industry and it would keep a lot of very, very good uh, technicians busy if we, if we were going through a drought of films or if there was only two or three films being made. Um, you know, commercials was a big, big industry for us and it, was, and it was a great training ground as well. We did all kinds of things. You know, I'd go and work on news, I'd go and work on documentaries, I'd go and yeah. work on... And one of the things that I think is a great shame now is that you have to kind of decide what area you're going to work in. For instance in the UK at least, it's very hard for TV drama mixers to break into features. But TV is very much where I learned to really be a mixer. The first kind of big, long job that I did, I guess, was The Professionals, which was another TV series. It was tough, you know, and it was fast. And we would, we would shoot 
you know, several pages a day. I've never understood in the UK that difficulty in moving from TV drama mixing into films because no. it shouldn't be like that. Those guys are great. It's they have to work learning. fast and there's no no ADR budget. And, and, and funnily enough, when I, I remember doing a film um, in the, in the um, I guess, mid-80s, not a big, big movie. Um, I'd come off of professionals. I'd come off of, and I was keen to get direct sound. And um, I worked on this not great movie. We'd watch dailies. And afterwards, the um, director came to me and he said, um, you know, took me aside and he said, he said, you're killing me. I said, what do you mean? He said, you've got to stop getting so much direct sound. He said, because I get my performance in the post-sync theater, in the ADR theater. He said, you know, I need that that time with the actors. You know, I don't have a very long schedule here. And this was a, this was a director who directed Bond movies. You know, he was upset that I was getting direct sound. It's, it's funny you should say that. Let me cut in there. My boom operator, Arthur, has actually had that situation very recently with a big Hollywood A-lister who said, you know what? You're killing me. I like yeah. my two-week vacations to the Dorchester to come back to the right. UK to loop. Well, and you're killing me. I'm not coming in and looping <laughs> when you guys are doing the movies. Simon, you'd mentioned to me that the very first uh, commercial that you did, one line of dialogue. How did you feel that day at the end of it? Was there a sense of accomplishment? You made it through that day. Yeah, I mean, what I didn't know was my old man had had a very, uh, he'd been quite clever. He'd been sending me out when he'd been turning down music videos and sending me out with a Nagra 4.2 to do playback on music videos. So I was unwittingly learning the Nagra and he hadn't said, listen, boy, you need to learn how the Nagra works. But by sending me out on these music videos, I'd got really, really fast at queuing up Nagras, at spooling them, at reload. You know, I got to know the Nagra. You mentioned Simon K earlier. Um, which brings me on to, onto one of the conversations that I had with my old man when I said, look, Dad, I've been offered this commercial. Do you think I should take it? And he said, why do you think they've offered it to you? And I said, well, she was very clear. It was because I'm young and they've got a young director. He said, yeah, but you know what's going to happen? I said, what? He said, the gaffers, the DP, all of those guys, they're going to be my age. He said, you're not going to get, get taken seriously unless you turn up with an experienced boom operator. So I said, well, who am I going to get? He said, I don't know, let me think about it. There was this guy at the time who was one of the UK's most experienced boom operators who'd spent a career doing big, big feature films, and he was actually being used by a lot of American mixers. He'd been off working with Chris Newman for a number of films, and his name's David Sutton. He'd unfortunately got very sick in the rainforest where they'd been, uh, they had a rain scene to do in the rainforest, and they'd been pumping the water out of the swamp and then spraying it over the crew and the actors, and he'd got some kind of parasite. Anyway, to cut a very long story short, spent six months in hospital, just about got over it, came back to the UK to convalesce and just said, look, I'm not going to do any movies. I'm just going to do commercials. My old man said, look, phone David Sutton. So I phoned him up. He was 50 at the time and I was 21. And I said, David, any chance you would come and do this commercial with me? And so I struck up this friendship with one of the most experienced, best boom operators in the UK and possibly the world at the time. You know, he was up there. And he'd been trained by Simon Kay, and he'd been working with Chris Newman. And so I suddenly had this access to this experience. And what would basically happen is we'd go to work together, and we'd do commercial after commercial after commercial. And, you know, he would, he would direct the sound department. Unknowingly, he would say, no, listen, you don't want to do it like that. What we want to do, we just want to put a plant underneath the table there. You don't need to put a radio mic on him. I'll get the foreground action on the boom. And he would basically do the mixer's job for me, but he wouldn't be operating the equipment. I'd be operating the equipment, making sure nothing square waved, pulling the gains, but he would actually tell me how to do it. And what he was doing was, frankly, he was teaching me Simon Kay's and Chris Newman's workflow. So over the course of from 21 to 25, 26 years old working with David, he basically gave me this incredible information that I never would have got anywhere else. I'd already had my old man's workflow. I was also going out and boom operating on little TV drums and stuff for other sound mixers who were wonderful. And what I would do is I would steal what I thought was good and I would throw away what I th thought was bad. We talk, Chris was talking about microphones earlier. So at that time in England, there was the BBC training scheme, which was brilliant. And the BBC training scheme 
basically taught you to use 416 on everything unless you were wired and then you'd use an 816. And it was very Sennheiser-based. And that was the way most British... Uh, guilty. <laughs> that, and, and that was the way British sound mixers were taught and it, and it worked and it was good. But I kind of had a, a slightly different uh, perspective. Firstly, because my old man hadn't come through that training system. He, because he'd been in a band when he was a kid and he was very music-based and, and he knew what studios used, he was an AKG, CK1, CK3 guy, which was, which was kind of a little bit out there at the time. Not everyone did that. And what I noticed with David was, David would say to me, look, um, wh why are you using this AKG? There's a microphone called a Sherps. It's, it's what everyone's using in the States. I had no, no one knew what a Sherps was at that time. So I bought a Sherps uh, CMC5 at the time with an MK41 capsule. And that was, that was my introduction to the Sherps. And then interestingly, you know, I've spoken about David introducing me to Chris Newman and Simon Kay's workflows, but also um, he got a film at the time and it was and I didn't have any commercials and he said listen I know that I'm normally working for you but I've got this film I need to take a few months off um, it's called The Secret Garden and I'm working with, a, with an American mixer that's coming over to the UK we've got some some a few weeks where we're going to need a utility to do some playback and stuff do you want to come and do it so he, he brought me in and introduced me to Drew Coonan who at the time was uh, I mean he, he's Drew's an, a fantastic sound mixer and I learned so much working for him and this goes back to this process where I kind of, I like to have a look at what other people are doing and I, I steal their ideas. If I think it's a good idea, I want a piece of it. And so I was very much basing my creative choices on microphones, not on the other UK mixers and what they were doing, which was very Sennheiser based. I was kind of looking to the American mixers and what they were using. And it was Drew that said to me, listen, you know, when I was saying what you, you know, what, what, there isn't a long gun mic to use apart from an 816. And he was like, dude, have you heard a Neumann 82i? And that was when I then went and bought a Neumann 82i. So suddenly I'm kind of basing my, my, uh, my microphone choices on what's going on across the pond. I was also at that point getting the Location Sound Corporation uh, manual every year, that basically their rental booklet, because it, it had interviews with people like Mark Alano, Jeff Wexler. It had pictures of their carts and I would li like literally study what equipment they had on their cart. And, they, you know, Lavalier uh, rigging tech uh, tips from, from different mixers. I think Lee Orloff did one, Mark Alano. And, you know, and so that was kind of, I was always looking to the States, uh, what people were using, why they were using it. So, we carried on working. David carried on doing commercials with me. But what was happening at the weekends was I was getting, I was starting to get offered these little short films because I was a young sound mixer and and people that I'd meet on a commercial. You know, I'd, I'd meet a young DP and he was going to go off and direct a, a short film at the weekend. So I started doing these short films and David said, "Look, I'm recovering and and we and th these short films are for nothing as usual. They're kind of student movies or whatever." And uh, he said, "Look." with the best will in the world, I come and do your commercials, but I'm not going to work at, at, on, on the weekends. And so a friend of mine called, called Arthur started coming and boom operating my short films for me. And one of those short films that we got asked to do was with a runner who I'd met on a commercial, who I kind of knew from London anyway. We'd grown up on the same side of London, but we, we knew of each other. We weren't friends, but we, we'd been in the same parties and clubs. And I'd met this runner on a commercial. Um, and he said, look, I've written this short film do you want to come and do it this weekend? And at the time, I was hungry to move into features. And the runner's name was Guy Ritchie. And the short film that we went and did was called The Hard Case, which he rewrote after we filmed it into a longer version, which became Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. That was my first movie, which Arthur came and did with me at the time. And, uh, and I was 27 when I did that. So both Chris and I have got the same thing in common. We both started mixing very early on in our 20s. The thing here, too, is that you've paired up with a boom operator that you've been with for many years. You talk about Jeff Wexler, who worked with Don Sufel for most of his career. Uh, and I know you've been working with Steve Finn, but who did you first work with uh, in the 80s there? I, it's interesting. I did much the same as, as Simon. I knew I had to get a really experienced boom operator. So I worked for many years with Colin Wood. So Colin Wood and I worked together for years and years almost until Colin decided he was going to slow down a bit and um, and retire. I then had a period where I worked with a couple of other 
different boom operators, still working with Colin and a couple of others. I worked a little bit with a boom operator called John Stevenson, who was an amazing boom operator who sadly passed away. And then um, I worked with, with Steve probably for the last 15 years. And Steve now has now started mixing. Is that difficult so, for him to to leave? To Because uh, I remember David McMillan talked to me about, yep. you know, with his own boom operators, that there was a point where he really encouraged them to, yes. to move on. And, and I've just been doing exactly that because, you know, because I also, you know, worked quite a lot in the US as well. And as you, you know, I'm also a 695 member. My boom operator that I pretty much always worked with um, in the US was Anthony Ortiz. And Anthony also came over to to UK for a couple of movies with me as well. And it's interesting because in this last year, I've been encouraging both Anthony and Steve. They've both made the break, and they're both doing they're both doing well. And I think it's you know there's a there's a great satisfaction in helping your team to to move on. To uh, I want to get into a few uh, little clips here. And I'd like to start with this first clip, which was going to take you, Chris, back 30 years to 1988. The English contribution to world cuisine, the chip. What do the English usually eat with chips to make them more interesting? Wait a moment. It's fish, isn't it? Here, boy. Down the hatch. <gasps> Delicious. You better eat the green one. Okay. What's this one's name? Well, not Wanda, anyway. Uh, I'm going to call her lunch. Hello, lunch. Hello. You avoid the green ones. They're not ripe yet. <laughs> a fish well, called Wanda, 1988. Yeah, amazing. Um, I mean, so this was from, I'd, I'd already worked quite a bit with John Cleese before then. This was a film that John had particularly wanted to make in five day weeks, working eight hours a day, 8.30 to 5.30, no weekends. And we had to make it in six weeks. The director was Charlie Crichton, who I had worked with Years and years before, um, when I when I'd first started, he was an old time Ealing uh, film director. Uh, he'd been a, an editor. He really understood comedy. He directed he'd, the Lavender Hill Mob and and all the films that I'd seen as a kid, all the films that I loved as a kid. He'd been the director of, and he was rather grumpy and um, and and but had a great sense of humour. And yeah, so we started the film. It, I think the budget was a million. No one ever dreamt that it was going to be as successful as it was. Of course, it was also the start of bringing in a couple of American actors with Kevin Klein and Jamie Lee Curtis. And we had a lot of fun. We were ahead of schedule to the point where then Charlie decided that he was going to reshoot some scenes, which we did, which were some of the funniest scenes in the movie. It took us eight years before we made the next one, which was Fierce Creatures, which sadly wasn't nearly as 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 good or as funny and um and i remember kevin klein saying to me afterwards you know what was missing was that uh, on the on my second day on um, fish called wonder i'd made a suggestion and charlie came across hit me with his stick told me to just do the acting and he would do the directing <laughs> <laughs> and um and um he said that's probably how the, the approach we should have had on this one what was your what was your gear what was the uh An equipment Niagara, time code Niagara, uh, not time code. No, and, uh -huh. and, and in fact, you know what? I never, I never owned a time code Niagara because I moved on to um, DAT very quickly. I was probably one of the first to go on to DAT and to digital, and um, and I was very interested, not just because it was digital, but very much in the way that the workflow could be um, streamlined with you know by digital, and so I went, I went into onto DAT very, very early on. Um, shortly after that film, that film was 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 done on Niagara Four, mono Niagara Four. Those were the days when we used to actually mix the dialogues to to one track. Um, John Cleese could not ADR, which was um, one of the reasons why you know he always asked me to work with him. I'd always work with him, but he absolutely hated ADR and said he just couldn't do it. And the, his comedy needed to be 
direct. I started to move on to um, to that on a film which was called The Russia House with Fred Skepsi, Sean Connery, mm-hmm. Michelle Pfeiffer. It was well known at the time that you were the first, by the way. Yeah. Every, everyone recognised it and we were all watching going, oh, have you heard what he's done? I know. He's, he's using these little tapes and yep. let, let's see if, if yep. it works. And, uh, yeah. and people would say, oh, it will never sink. It will never sink. Yep. And oh, no, no, it's going to be terrible and it will never... Were you yeah. using audio limited or microns or... Well, as far as radio mics are concerned, I was using very much microns and audio limited, but microns, I think, very much then. And in were, terms of the lavaliers, tram trims? I never liked trams particularly much, so I used a lot of the little Sony ECM 77s. Mm-hmm. It was always kind of a sound that I preferred to the trams, or not just the, just the way I could mount them and that kind of thing. And um, and so what I did first off on, on, on Russia House was I, I had an Agra, but I also had a DAP machine, non-time code. And um, that was how I recorded it. Because there was no time code DATS at that point. No time but code It was DATS. the first DAT that came out and it was a consumer one. I remember I remember hearing all about this. And, and I very much, you know, I got very involved with Fostex and I persuaded Fostex to get involved with time code DAT. And they, of course, made the first time code DAT machine. Mm. Um, and then, of course, the first portable time code DAT machine because the first time code DAT machine that I had was a D20, which was a mains powered machine. Yep. Um, then they came out with the PD2. And they came out with the PD2, which was, yeah. I was very involved in. But at that stage, I then had, by that time, already started a post-production company along with Dean Humphreys and Jerry Humphreys, later at, at Twickenham, where we, we were the first kind of interdigital post. I continued to use quarter-inch tape as well for a little while after that. But I realized is a lot of people would listen, would, would monitor on the Niagara and be recording to that without realizing that digital mixing and analog mixing are two different animals yep. and you have to mix in a different way yep. for analog. You know, on analog, you were always pushing the limit. You were using the you signal were using to noise. distortion. You were, you were, the saturation, the you tape. Were, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, often you'd want to saturate the tape. You'd, you'd fight against the um, signal to noise, whereas in digital, you know, you had to have a different mindset. And so... This is something that isn't spoken about enough, actually. But, it, but ca- carry it on is so interesting so, because it is a completely different style so of mixing. So in my mind, a lot of people were getting it very wrong. Yeah. They were going to digital, but they were also monitoring and using their analog. I, 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 very, I realized that that was a huge mistake, and so I dropped my analog very early on because I knew that it wasn't a true backup because it had to be one or the other. Because what digital gave us suddenly was dynamic range. Exactly. We could work with dynamic range, and we've exactly. never been able to in the past. Not as much as then, because it was 16-bit, of course. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Yep. Well, I wanted to share one fact with you about a fish called Wanda. You may not know this, but in 1989, Dr. Oli Benson, a 56-year-old Danish audiologist, reportedly in good health, laughed himself to death while watching the film. <laughs> <laughs> See these goods? Never seen daylight, moonlight, Israelite... Fanny by the gaslight. Take a bag. Come on, take a bag. I took a bag home last night. It cost me a lot more than £10, I can tell you. Anyone like jewellery? Look at that one there. Handmade in Italy, hand stolen in Stepney. It's as long as my arm. I wish it was as long as something else. Don't think because these boxes are sealed up, they're empty. The only man who sells empty boxes is The Undertaker. And by the look of some of you lot here today, I make more money with me measuring tape. Here, one price. £10. Did you say £10? Are you deaf? A very youthful Jason Statham there, Guy Ritchie. That was, a, that was an ad-lib, by the way. Oh, really? That whole piece was an ad-lib. Well, you were just talking about how you worked with uh, Guy Ritchie in a short film. He was a runner, and now you know, he's one of the biggest uh, directors here in the UK. That's a relationship that's lasted 20 years and will obviously continue much uh, beyond in the next 20 years. But um, tell me a little bit about Lockstock. I'd heard that... It was pretty much all done on a boom, no radio mics. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because Lockstock was put together with a load of HODs that were just like me. We were young people. We were very, very hungry, ambitious. We'd had uh, semi-successful careers, even as young men and women, on commercials and music videos. But there was this British film industry that was so hard for people like us to break into because there was... Chris and his colleagues, um, and there wasn't enough movies being made. The established 
HODs were working on movies, but there wasn't enough movies being made for the young people to break in. So we'd been doing commercials and music videos and short films and just trying to do whatever we could. And so suddenly Guy gave us this opportunity. There was me, Tim Morris-Jones, the the, the, the DP and a, a number of other people who hadn't worked on a movie before. And we got sent this script. And, the, you know, everyone says this about script, but Lockstock was a page turner. You start reading it and the pages start turning faster and faster and faster and you're laughing and, you, you know, 10 pages in, you're going, oh my God, this is amazing. It's going to make it. And, uh, and so we all turned up on the set and we all wanted to do a great job because our careers depended on it. If we could make this movie work, perhaps we would have a movie career. Who knows? And I remember Tim Morris-Jones, the DP, saying to me very early on, I think we'd, we'd worked together a couple of times on music videos and commercials, but as those were only one or two days jobs, we hadn't got to know each other well. But on the reckeys of Lockstock, we were talking about noisy locations and Tim came over to me and said, listen, I'm counting on you to get good sound on this. Because if we don't get good sound, we're going to end up ADRing it. And if we ADR this dialogue, this comedy dialogue, it's going to kill the movie. So if you need help from me, you just tell me what you need. If you want, if if guy wants to shoot in a location and you think it's rubbish and he's not listening to you, just tell me and I'll tell him it's no good for camera either. Okay. So we were all working together to try and make the best possible product because we all were so hungry to move into feature films. And so there was a palpable feeling of ambition on the set and everyone wanting to do their best job and everyone wanting to be collaborative and help each other out. What we didn't have was that kind of, dare I say, old school attitude of perhaps electricians not wanting to move ballast because they couldn't be bothered because it was a low budget film. And, you know, even the gaffer was, you know, 27 years old and it was his first job as a gaffer. And the DP anyway was saying, listen, if Simon needs a ballast move, move it. So, you know, we were we were all trying to do our best job. I hadn't really had to use radio mics a lot because I'd come from a commercials background. We were still shooting one camera on small films in the UK at that time. We very, very rarely get a second camera out, and we certainly didn't on commercials. So I hadn't had to use radios a lot. The other thing is, remember, that David Sutton had taught me how to mix, and he'd been working with Chris Newman, who at that point didn't use radio mics. I know things changed later on with Chris, but Chris's whole deal back in those days was we don't use radios. Um, my old man didn't really use radios. We had two microns in the kit and they didn't work very well. And, you know, and you had to, you know, you literally had to get the receiver six foot away from the transmitter to get anything like a signal that wasn't dropping out. So basically the truth is I was scared of radio mics. Not only was I scared of radio mics, I recognized at that point that unless you had multiple tracks, which we didn't then, you were into a very, very uh, dangerous situation trying to mix radios and booms together because unless you got it absolutely right, you were going to be into ADR. And I was watching people like Jeff Wexler and Don Safau and what they were doing on movies like An Officer and a Gentleman and saying, well, Jeff has managed to record the whole of Officer and a Gentleman on one microphone. With Don, it was it was all done on a CMC5 MK41 Sherps. Everything, interiors and exteriors, wide and tight. It sounds great. And so at that point in my career, and by the way, single camera shooting allowed me to do this, I decided that sound continuity, and this was my mantra, sound continuity is more important than throwing lots of different microphones at stuff. And so what we did on Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, we basically let the microphone work and we used the camera perspective. Unfortunately, my Neumann 82i was a little bit, uh, it wasn't working too well at that point, I remember. So I was using an 816 on everything outdoors. So basically, Lock, Stock was this. Every single piece of exterior dialogue was recorded on a Sennheiser 816. Every single piece of interior dialogue was recorded on a Sherps CMC5 MK41. We had a second CMC5 MK41 that if we needed to get, a, we didn't, there was only two of us, there was only me and Arthur, we didn't have a utility. So if we needed to get a plant in, perhaps a magic arm deep in the background, or perhaps someone, you know, hard camera right that Arthur couldn't get to, we would have that second microphone that we could use. And we had two tracks. We were recording on a DAT. It was my first film. I'd done commercials on a time code Nagra, 
And then for my first film, I decided to move on to that. Chris had pioneered it. Everyone was saying that that was great. And I'd been using that for perhaps a year before we did Lockstock. And again, what I decided, because I started working on that so early, I kind of got to grips very, very quickly with what Chris was touching on, which is you can work with dynamic range with that. And so what I was trying to do was I was trying to, on that first movie, I was mixing for digital, not mixing like, like analog. And if, if someone went low, I would let them go low. If someone went high, I would let them go high. Because suddenly, you know, let's talk about usable dynamic range. Suddenly you've got 40 or 50 dB usable dynamic range on a DAT tape. And on the Nagra, you kind of had 15, 20 maximum, right? Maximum. And even less if you're using radio mics, which is, which is yeah. quite interesting. Because I know, for instance, um, Fish Called Wonder, I don't think we used any radio mics at all yeah. on it. And, and that has a lot to do, I think, also with the style of filmmaking then. Yeah. So someone like Charlie Crichton would never do, would never shoot a whole master. No. What they would do is they would start the very wide master and they would maybe either do a uh, have it have it as a developing master so they then went in and became a close up which they then cut into or they would just do the they would top and tail it they would just shoot the beginning and the end bear in mind we were shooting on film processing there was a lot of cost involved they would they would save their actors performances for the close-ups as well mm, yes and so what we would do is we would very much treat the very wide shot uh, as as being kind of unimportant for sound because we always knew that we would cover it in close-up and because it was that wide, we could use the close-up dialogue. The sound editor would use the close-up dialogue and, for it. And that's exactly what happened on Lockstock and, Stock and Two and, Smoking and, Barrels. And sound editors always worked that way. Sound editors would always get the best close-up dialogue and then they would they would do their best to try to fit it to the wider shots. Yeah, um, exactly that. And, and, and there was much less need for radio mics. Yeah, um, but what's interesting is that 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 I think a lot of a lot of mixers were falling foul of the fact they were monitoring on headphones, and often they got what I call radio mic ear, where the radio mics actually sounded to them on headphones better because they sounded closer. They were scared of the width of the boom. But it was only when you went when you go when you have the opportunity to go and see dailies mm. where you can actually listen to the difference that you realize that the boom had all the width, had all yeah. the dynamics which the, and it and it fitted the picture better. Well, the but, truth the truth is for me at that point, I was scared of radios. I was yeah. scared that I wouldn't get them working right, but I completely concur with your with what you're saying mm. that you only really get a sense of the width and the fact mm -hmm. that the boom matches the way that we mm. hear sound as a human being. Yep. You know, someone once said to me very early in my career, listen, your ear isn't on the, the guy you're talking to his no. chest. And and that's that's the danger with radio mics, that everything is so <laughs> close up and compressed, mm. you don't let the performance no. breathe and, and, and it doesn't sound real. And, and I don't know if you, if you find it, but I, I really think that we really lost something by not having rushes or dailies anymore. You know, I yeah. think when we all used to go into dailies and watch them together, and it was a time when you could talk to the director, you could, you know... Mm. You, you could say whatever you wanted to say, but also you learn very much about what you'd done the day before. Yeah, yeah. And you work, and you, and you realize what worked and what didn't work. Exactly. Let me just finish the, the lock, stock, and two smoking barrels story. I just want to say something before we move on. At the end of lock, stock, and two smoking barrels, Guy Ritchie said to me, he phoned me up on the first day in the cutting room after we finished shooting. We'd become firm friends at that point. And he said, listen, Tim, the DIP's up here. We've got this fantastic room in Soho. There's coffee. You know, we've got a budget to get people bacon sandwiches. Just come up. We're having a laugh. And, and I didn't have a commercial because I'd taken eight weeks off commercials. Suddenly, I didn't have any commercials. They'd moved on to another sound mixer. So I went up there to kind of see the chaps and have a laugh. And I got into the Avid and started watching Niv and Howie, the editor, work. And suddenly, every single mistake that I'd made was there on screen as they tried to cut two different takes together, two different angles together. Every single thing that I had done right that sounded great, I, I recognized. And so I went in, I, I basically decided that I wasn't going to take any commercials while the cutting process went on. And I went up every single day to sit for eight or nine hours a day with Guy Ritchie and Niv and Howie to watch Lockstock being cut together and it was under the guise of just spending some time with the chaps and, and having fun but I actually recognized that I was there to learn and what I did I just sat and watched everything that worked and everything that didn't and I learned so much I spent as much time watching Lockstock being cut and listening to Lockstock being cut as we did filming it and that was an invaluable process at that point in my career 
But moving on to what uh, Chris has just said about Two Booms, my second film that I was offered was a film called Fanny and Elvis, which was written by a very, very famous uh, uh, TV writer called Kay Meller in the UK. And it was going to be her directorial debut. And I had this interview with her. And she said, look, I've interviewed a couple of sound men and uh, they, they're telling me we can't overlap. And she said, my scripts are all about overlaps. And I want to know why we can't overlap. And I want to know whether you can make it work. And frankly, I was going to say anything to get this movie. And as far as I was concerned, overlaps were going to kill her. But I wasn't going to tell her that because I knew that I wouldn't get the movie. So what I said was, listen, I can make the overlaps work if your editor agrees with it. And I thought to myself, that's lovely. I'll just pass it over to the picture editor. The picture editor <laughs> will do his job and tell her that she can't have overlaps. And, uh, and you know, and, and that'll be fine. And perhaps I'll get the job because I was the guy that said she, she can overlap and the picture editor will tell her she can't. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so I said, yeah, we can make that work. I'm sure we, you know, as long as the picture editor agrees with it, we'll go for it. Anyway, I got a phone call 24 hours later from the producer saying, listen, Kay loved you. She loved the fact that you said that that she can overlap. And I just wanted to let you know that the picture editor's all for it. He thinks it's a great idea. And so suddenly, I, okay, all right. And I started thinking about how we were going to have to make this work. You know, I told you that Arthur and I had done Lockstock on our own. At the end of Lockstock, we'd got together and we'd both sworn to each other that regardless what happened, we were never going to do a movie as a two-man team again. Because we recognized, firstly, how tired we were. Secondly, how much, uh, how many compromises we had to make because of it. I've talked to you about the plant. That could have been on a second boom. So anyway, I went back to Fanny and Elvis and said, look, I'd love to do the movie, but we're going to need to have uh, a third man, which is what we called in those days a sound utility. And they said, look, there's a, you can't have a third man. We went backwards and forwards and we were going to shoot up in Yorkshire. They eventually came back to me and said, look, we can't have a London third man, but we've got a guy who's just finished a sound course at the University of Sheffield, and he's saying that he'd love to come and do it. And so we got this guy called Robin Johnson, who's still with us today. He's done 54 movies with me and Arthur now. Um, he came on a movie number two, and he's still with us, and he's our second boom operator. And the way that we did Fanny and Elvis, again, we didn't use any radio mics. What we did was we had two tracks on a DAT machine, and what we did was we assigned track number one to Arthur and track number two to Robin. And we basically um, had, if we were shooting a wide shot, we'd have them splitting up the room the way two boom operators do, where Arthur would perhaps do the left side and Robin would do the right side, or Arthur would do the foreground and Robin would do the background, whatever the shot needed. But then what we would do, if we were going into close-ups, we would have Robin uh, Arthur do on-screen and Robin do off-screen. And what that, of course, enabled us to do was to keep the overlaps on mic, even if they were off-screen, and allowed the editor to just cut in on syllables and basically make these overlaps work. And Fanny and Elvis actually works brilliantly for it because Kay Meller's dialogue is all overlapped. It's all, it's all about uh, arguments and disagreements, the film. And, uh, and, and, you know, and having those two boom operators work like that enabled Kay to get that movie without having to ADR any of those performances, which was so important to her. And that concludes part one of our In Conversation with Chris Monroe and Simon Hayes. My thanks to Warner Brothers Delane Lee for hosting us. Please check out our continuing conversation in part two of our podcast.